Good morning. Welcome to Grace Bible Church. As I have said many, many, many times, I'm always thankful to gather with the saints for worship. Uh, we sweet It's sweet when we hear the voices of the saints. I just think of that song where we had the echo, the, the ladies echoing, and at the end it was very sweet to hear the ladies ring out at the end. Uh, we don't get that unless we're here present, uh, enjoying one another in fellowship and gathering together in worship. You know, it's easy to, for us to take for granted the power of congregating as God's people. Now, we must not discount the role of the Spirit among uh, His people as we assemble in the name of Christ. It is the Spirit's work to knit our hearts together in love as He builds us into a holy temple of God. And Christ gives us gifts of the Spirit, which we are to use in the context of the body for the building up of the body of Christ. And this building up will continue until we all attain to the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. I'm getting that from Ephesians 4, of course. Now, when we use our spiritual gifts within the body, we are to do so, though, in an orderly manner, an orderly way. The human body, in the human body, each part has its function to contribute to the body's purpose. In the same way, each, each person in the body of Christ, each individual contributes to the overall body's function. This implies orderliness, does it not? Orderliness within the body of Christ. You know, no matter where we look in God's creation, we observe this orderliness, do we not? Of course, this, we have a fallen world and it's marred, but there's still order in creation. We see this as we uh, observe nature, as we observe the created order. In 1 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Paul, the apostle, he appealed to this created order when arguing for headship. The father is head over the son, the son is head over every man, and the, the man is head over a woman. Now, as you uh, may be aware, probably aware, the discu discussion of male headship is wrought with conflict in our world and in the church. Some of you may even be right now squirming in your seats, even as I bring up this simple to topic made so complex in our fallen world, in our culture. There is no question, beloved, there's no question that some men abuse their authority. Some abuse their authority in their families with their wives and their children. Some abuse their leadership authority in the church. And as such, we need to take the time to fully understand the truths of God's word as we explore what Paul means by subjecting oneself to the authority of another. Today and in the coming weeks, we will study the importance of submission within the church and within the family. Today's sermon will transition us to a new series in the, the book of Ephesians, which, which Phil brought up, uh, that's going to start next week. Called We're calling it Family Matters. You see, family matters to God, and family matters to the church. And as such, there are family matters that we need to discuss and understand in the church and in, the, and in our families. Now, here are some questions that we need to answer over the next few weeks regarding the theology of submission within the body of Christ and within the family. First, what is biblical submission? And why does Paul teach that it is a, it is a 
crucial indication of being filled with the Spirit. Secondly, what is the purpose of biblical submission? Third, are there limits to authority in the church and in the family? In other words, what does submission not mean? Fourth, what are the potential pitfalls of submission within the church and the family? Fifth, how should we practice biblical submission? Sixth, 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 why does our culture hate the idea of authority and submission? And seventh, what has led to the current struggles in the church and evangelicalism regarding authority and submission? We hope to answer these questions in the coming weeks. Now, beloved, we have spent the last four years at this church teaching the critical importance of rightly dividing the Word of God. Just this past summer, almost a year ago now, uh, we preached a six-part series on the Word of God and why we should trust it. My prayer is that as we delve into this culturally divisive subject, the Holy Spirit will illuminate the truths of God's Word so that we can walk in wisdom being filled with the Spirit as we submit ourselves to one another. Let me pray for the sermon, and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. and praise you that we can gather together. Lord, as we approach this difficult subject that's wrought with so many pitfalls, that is so divisive in our culture and even in the church. Lord, I pray that we would search your scripture and that we would trust your word because it's perfect, right, and errant. That you would show us the way that we should live. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read the section in Ephesians 5 that we currently find ourselves in, starting in verse 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Early in, in early 2020, prior to the great COVID lockdowns, the Houston Chronicle broke a story about what they called the pattern of abuse in Southern Baptist churches. In their six-part series, the newspaper chronicled abuses in Southern Baptist churches over the past 20-plus years. In the article, they report that since 1998, roughly 380 Baptist church leaders, Southern Baptist church leaders, and volunteers have faced allegations of sexual misconduct. According to the newspaper, this includes those who were convicted, credibly accused, and successfully sued and those who confessed or resigned. They also reported that these people, these people perpetrators, left behind more than 700 victims within the Southern Baptist Fellowship. Of those accused, nearly 100 are still held in prisons today, or at least at the time this newspaper article was written. Others cut deals and served no time. 
more than 100 of them are now registered sex offenders. Some still work in Southern, Southern Baptist churches even now. In August 2019, the same newspaper ran an article about Paige Patterson, who was a former president of the Southern Baptist Convention. In that story, they reported uh, the story of a young pastor who experienced a meteoric rise in Southern Baptist churches in the late 80s. He was heartily endorsed by Patterson, as well as Jerry Vines, who was also a former Southern Baptist president. According to this article, this man was accused of multiple accusations of abuse in Southern Baptist churches. These allegations were investigated, but but these, these inquiries did not yield credible evidence of wrongdoings. They were investigated in-house, and then they were found that they were not credible. So this man continued. Therefore, he continued to be supported even by Patterson and others within the Southern Baptist Convention. That is until 1991, when Paige Patterson forced this man's resignation due to credible evidence of adultery with female members of the church he pastored. After his resignation, the man continued to pastor outside of Southern Baptist circles until he was convicted of molesting a teenager and sending lewd text to another. Now, most of you are familiar with Beth Moore. She is a popular author and was part of the Southern Baptist Convention for many years. I'm sure that some of you, if not many of you, have used her Bible studies, which have been immensely popular for years. In early March 2021, Beth Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention due to disagreements regarding sexism and nationalism in the evangelical world, especially in Southern Baptist circles. After Donald Trump's election in 2016, in which he enjoyed overwhelming support in Southern Baptist circles, she voiced concern over the support of Donald Trump due to his infidelities and his past remarks concerning women. She was alarmed by a pattern of nationalism which was supported by what she calls a patriarchal system in the church. In other words, sexism in evangelical circles, in her opinion, allowed Donald Trump to enjoy overwhelming support in the Southern Baptist churches. Morse points to her childhood experiences of sexual abuse, saying that she can never support a system which continues to enable... uh, abuses. In an interview about her announcement of leaving the Southern Baptist Convention, she says this, I am still a Baptist, but I can no longer identify with Southern Baptist. I love so many Southern Baptist people, so many Southern Baptist churches, but I don't identify with some of the things in our heritage that haven't remained in the past. Now, in recent weeks, very very recently, she has given more more information regarding her concerns with the Southern Baptist churches. In a a recent tweet, she says, she says this, Let me be blunt. When you treat complementarianism, a doctrine of man, which she puts in capital letters, as if it belongs among the matters of first importance, yea, as a litmus test for where one stands on the inerrancy and authority of Scripture, you are the ones who misuse Scripture. You went too far. A second tweet in the thread added, I beg your forgiveness where I was complicit. I could not see it, that would be complementarianism, 
for what it was until 2016. That is when Donald Trump was elected. I plead your forgiveness for how I just submitted to it and supported it and taught it, end quote. Now, I should point out a couple of things about her assertions. First, she says that complementarianism is a doctrine of man. Now, let me define this term for you. It has been defined as the belief that God created men and women with equal dignity and worth, but with differing roles. On the other hand, egalitarianism has been defined as equality in authority and responsibilities between men and women in the home, church, and in society. Egalitarians argue that verses used to justify restrictions on women have been misinterpreted. They argue that the Bible teaches mutual submission of all people to each other in relationships and in human institutions as a form of respect, and that this does not necessarily require a hierarchy of authority. Now, Moore also says that complementarianism has been treated as a matter of first importance. Now, one can assume one can assume that she believes that complementarianism has given theological basis for sexism in evangelicalism. Now, that's a, that's a mouthful. Basically, the, the teaching that, that men and women are equal but have different roles has given the basis for sexism, taking advantage or abusing that in churches, in the, in the local churches. Therefore, this doctrine, and this is again according to her, what she believes, this doctrine has enabled destructive and unfettered sexual abuse in the church. It has also led to the majority support of a known sexist in the name of patriotism. Again, Donald Trump. She's saying that, that we know that he's a sexist and we support him as a church in the name of being a patriot. Now, we can't stop at the abuse of the women in the church. We must also bring up other accusations of abuse of authority in, the, in churches. In 2019, James McDonald was fired by the elder board at Harvest Bible Chapel for engaging in conduct contrary and harmful to the best interest of the church. Previously, he had been accused of an ongoing pattern of relational and financial abuse, a lack of transparency, and outright deception. Ultimately, he was charged with self-promotion, the love of money, domineering and bullying, abusive speech, outbursts of anger, and making misleading statements. For his part, McDonald denies many of these accusations. You can go look on it. On, he's got a website that he goes through and denies many of these accusations. Previously, prior to that, C.J. Mahaney and Mark Driscoll were accused of similar charges. Again, the abuse of authority. Regardless of who you believe, some folks have used these accusations to highlight the abuse of authority in the church. They have also attacked biblical doc doctrines regarding authority in the church and in the family. It doesn't take a, a brain surgeon to figure that out. As you can tell, this is a complicated issue, is it not? It's a very difficult issue. But it requires us, because of its, its nature, it requires us to think critically about these matters. Now, considering all this, the question is, what does the Bible teach regarding authority and submission in the church and in the family? In 2 Samuel 11, 
We find the story of David and Bathsheba. David was the king of all Israel who sent his men out to battle, but decided to remain in Jerusalem instead of joining him. Then, that is. He saw Bathsheba, I'm shortening the story, he saw, saw Bathsheba bathing and inquired about her, and ultimately he lay with her. Afterwards, she told him that she was pregnant, and he tried to cover his tracks by having her husband Uriah come home and lay with her, but Uriah honorably refused because he didn't want to leave his men. Eventually, he ordered Joab, that would be David, ordered Joab to place Uriah on the front line of battle and withdraw support from him so that he would be murdered or killed. Joab followed David's instructions and Uriah was killed in battle. Then David took Bathsheba as his wife. Now, is this story not a great example of... It's not a great example. It's, a, it's, a, it's an example. It's not great. It's, a, it's an example of the abuse of authority. I mean, David abused his authority. It was a, and, and as a matter of fact, we can't miss 2 Samuel eleven twenty seven, which says the thing that David did or had done was evil was evil in the sight of the Lord. Eventually, the Lord sent Nathan to rebuke David for his sin. And the sons of Eli are another biblical example of the abuse of authority. They were taking more than their allotted portion of sacrifice, and they were serving themselves before they served God. As such, the Bible says their sin was very great before the Lord. As the Bible teaches, there is nothing new under the sun. There have been men taking advantage of and abusing their authority from the beginning. In Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the other religious leaders took advantage of their authority by abusing the people. The story of the widow's might in Luke 21 is another great example of wicked leaders abusing people, especially the needy, for whom they are responsible. But here's the point. The point I want to make. We must recognize that these stories of abuse would have been well known. Paul would have known those stories of abuse as he penned the words of Ephesians 5.21. And therefore, if Paul had done the same as folks are doing today, he would have said, well, obviously we need to reinterpret the Bible because the doctrine of submission has led to great abuses among God's people. But he didn't do that, did he? And neither, neither should we. We must not do that. We must take the time to understand God's heart for his people. We must think critically as we study God's amazing design for the church and the family. Now, as I've mentioned, we find ourselves in Ephesians 5.21. This verse comes at the end of the paragraph, which we started in 5.15. In that verse, 5.15, Paul gives the last of five walk statements, the command to walk in wisdom, not as a fool. Uh, These walk statements form the structure of the last three chapters of of Ephesians and describe the walk which is worthy of the calling of Christ. In chapters 1 through 3, he described this glorious calling and our salvation in Christ. Therefore, considering all that has been accomplished in your salvation, he, you should live this way. That is Ephesians 4.1. This explanation should help us understand the purpose of the final three chapters of, of, of the letter. 
Again, you have been saved with this glorious salvation, therefore you are called to the worthy walk. Now most of you should be familiar with, uh, in, in 521 that is, we made our way to 521, which is the last of four instructions for living wisely in these evil days. Now most of you should be familiar with the first three instructions, so I won't go back through them, uh, but I will tell them. The, the first three instructions, 516, is redeem your time. The second instruction is understand God's will. The third instruction is realize and understand the work of the Spirit. And now the fourth instruction, which we're ha- doing today, looking at, at today, is you must reflect your roles clearly. Now, before we start breaking down verse 21, I need to spend a few minutes explaining the structure of this section, because I think it helps us understand what Paul is trying to uh, accomplish here. Now, there is some question regarding how this verse, verse 21, fits in its immediate context. The NASB and the ESV place this verse at the end of the paragraph, like I'm, you know, 515 through 21, while the NIV, if you have one of, of those, places this verse at the beginning of the next section. Now, our sermon outline further highlights this ten- tension. As I've said, this is the final verse in the paragraph which runs from 515 to 21. More particularly, it is the final participle describing the results of being filled with the Spirit. Look at your text in verse 19. Paul says, speaking, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's a, that's the word speaking is a participle that governs the, this, the point. The next one is singing and making melody in your heart, with your heart. The third one is giving thanks for all things in the name of Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now, the fourth one, which is the fourth instruction, is subject or be subject. You could also translate this subjecting uh, yourself or subjecting oneself to one another. Now, you should be asking why then. In my outline, I have made this the final instruction for walking wisely because it is the fourth or the final point of walking wisely. And not under the heading of being filled with the Spirit. The reason is it's actually both. It's both because verse 21 forms a hinge between this paragraph and the next section where he begins to illustrate the principle he introduces in verse 21. As such, as such, proper submission is the fourth instruction of the walk of wisdom and it's the final result of being filled with the Spirit. Therefore, as Christians, we must recognize that it's crucial to fully grasp God's heart for Christian love, which is demonstrated by loving authority and loving submission. Matter of fact, it's so important, it's so crucial, that Paul spends the next 22 verses explaining the concept. It's so critical that he compares loving that he compares loving submission within the family and loving authority within the family by invoking Christ's loving sacrifice for the church. Beloved, let me just say this. The Holy Spirit does not want us to miss this. It's that critical. I cannot emphasize enough the importance of the upcoming few weeks as we delve into God's heart 
regarding our relationships, our relationships within our families, our relationships within the church, and how we are to live in our culture and society. Now, my prayer is that this series will be transformative for our, for our church, that we will see, we will see changes that are, that are wrought by the Holy Spirit. We must recognize that proper authority and submission matters to God. And we also must recognize, as another plug for the series coming up, that family matters to Him as well. It matters to Him. And it should matter to us. Now, with this in mind, let us dive into verse 21. Paul writes, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, first, for us to reflect our roles clearly, first, we are to be in correct submission. In correct submission. Look at your text. Paul writes, Be subject to one another. The word translated be subject has the idea of being subject or submitting oneself. Further, the word has the concept of order or arrangement. Therefore, Paul was signifying that Christians order ourselves under authority or leadership. Now, the NAS, the, the version that I'm using, use, translates this verb, be subject. Most English translations use the word submitting. Submission captures the idea, the captures the idea of what we are to do, but be subject brings in the idea of a military structure. There's, a, there's, there's hierarchy in a, in a military structure. Now, the action of this verb can be translated in two different ways. It could be passive, in which one, the one submitting has no control. Or it could be a middle verb, which would mean that they, they are actively submitting themselves. They're, they're giving themselves to, be, to submission. Now, I would argue that in the context, the latter makes the most sense. Remember, this is part of the walk of wisdom and the result of being filled with the Spirit. So, with submission, there are two sides of the equation. The one in authority and the one in submission. And it's, it's wise, then, to fully understand God's heart for your role and to understand that you will be held accountable for your actions. Therefore, I believe that, it, that the call here is to submit oneself. I believe that each person must make a conscious decision in how they will reflect their roles within the body of Christ and within the family. When we are filled with the Spirit, the result will be that we will gladly submit to others based on the roles that we play, if you will. Now, it doesn't take much for us to understand that the, there's a vast difference between how the, the world views submission and how the Christian should view it. The unbelieving world takes pride in individualism and independence, especially in America, right? We're, in, we're independent. I, mean, I'm from, I was in Nevada for 10 years, and they're battle-born. They're independent. You don't mess with them. This manifests itself, though, in selfishness, does it not? Selfishness leads to actions which are detrimental to the functioning of society. And we should also recognize that selfishness afflicts the church and our families as well, does it not? Selfishness leads to divorce. Selfishness leads to many, many sins within the church. Leads to conflict. 
It leads to conflict in the church. It leads to conflict in our, in our families. It leads to conflict in society. And we don't have to look very far to see it, do we not? Now, over the next few weeks, we'll specifically study the various roles in the family structure. But for now, we're going to look briefly at the, at the roles in the life of the church. Now, Scripture, Scripture clearly teaches that we are to be, there are to be leadership and authority. There's to be leadership and authority within the body of Christ. This truth is reflected in the following verses. Acts 20, 28. Paul writes, or Luke writes, and Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. In this verse, we see the Holy Spirit's role in choosing overseers, those who are in authority in the church, to shepherd God's people. This verse also admonishes the overseer, the overseer, that he must guard the flock against those who would abuse spiritual authority. So he's saying that there's going to be, there's going to be people who will rise up from among you. And, and they will uh, take care, they will, they will be wolves in the, among the flock. And as overseers, it's our job, the overseer's job, to protect the flock. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 Paul writes, but we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Notice he qualifies it. They have charge over you. Again, the overseer is chosen by God. And now we see they have charge over you in the Lord's qualification. And they give you instruction. And that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work and live in peace with one another. Again, we see that this idea of authority in church. There is, a, there is authority. Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider, considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Again, we see those who led you. Authority in church, in the church. Hebrews 13.17, he goes on to say, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. <coughs> Clearly, according to Scripture, again, there are to be leadership roles within the body of Christ. And it is the responsibility, according to Scripture, it is the responsibility for the body to submit to the authority given by God to the church. Now, we need to be careful. We need to be careful. It's given by God. And that's important, and we'll see that in a moment. Now, we should also recognize that there is an aspect of mutual submission here. Paul uses the phrase, to one another, so there's, it's reciprocal in some ways. I take this to mean that there are multiple roles. Therefore, we may be called to submit in one role and while being in authority in other ways. At one time in my life, I was employed by one of the elders. I mean, I employed, I actually gave a job to, and this man worked for me. He was one of the elders in our church. At church, he was my, at spiritually, he was my spiritual leader. While at work, he was my employee. It took humility for us to make this arrangement work to the glory of God. There were, there were situations where I submitted to him spiritually. There were situations where he submitted to me as in a, from a work context. Surely we failed at times, but, but you get the picture. 
Today I'm a pastor. As such, I've been given spiritual authority. But I have to realize that my authority, the only authority that I have, comes from God and God's Word and nothing else. It's not, thus saith Brandon. Right? Thus saith the pastor. It's thus saith the Lord. And I must also recognize that I'm called to submit in certain ways to other people within the body. You understand that? I, I, there's other leaders that God has given to this church. I'm called to submit to them in many ways. I'm also called to submit to other men outside this church. I'm being held accountable by other men outside this church. They hold me accountable to preach and teach right doctrine and to care for this church in a godly way. And if they hear something other, they're going to come to me. And they're going to say, what are you doing? You need to fix this. You need to repent, brother. I'm not a free agent. I'm not a free agent, and that's how God designed it. We need to submit, subject ourselves to one another. As the body of Christ, we must work to model mutual submission as is appropriate for each role. This leads us to the second way to reflect your biblical roles. We are to have the correct stimulus. We are to have the correct stimulus. Look at your text. Paul writes, and be subject to one another, but he qualifies it. In the fear of Christ. Paul is referring here to a reverential fear of Christ. He's not referencing a terror-filled fear. Although, if we disobey, then there's a possibility. We can't be assured necessarily if we continue to... If there's a pattern of disobedience in our lives, we can't be assured that we won't see that terror. But this is a fear that he speaks of that leads us to honor the Lord. In other words, this is the type of fear that leads us to worship Him. And we are to reflect our roles clearly within the body of Christ, our families, and society because we have a worshipful, reverential fear of Christ. We submit to our leaders because we are submitting to our Lord because we know and we trust that our Lord is the one who's putting the leaders in place. Hopefully that's the case. This truth should give us great comfort because we know that He is the ultimate judge. He will hold us accountable if we're prideful and refuse to submit to authority. Now, while I believe that this verse teaches us that we are required to submit, I think there's a much greater emphasis here on those who are in spiritual authority. That's the ones we need to really talk about. We must recognize that Christ will hold those who abuse their spiritual authority to a much greater account. As such, spiritual leaders, according to James 3.1, he talks about teachers there, but I think you can apply this to spiritual leaders, will incur a stricter judgment. Church, we should not miss that those in leadership have a great responsibility to God and to those in their charge. Ezekiel 3.17-18 illustrate this accountability. It says, Son of man, I have appointed you a watchman to the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn him and speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity. But his blood I will require at your hand. 
You see, there is a great accountability to the Lord. Here the accountability is to speak the truth to God's people. If I choose not to, I'm going to be held accountable to who? To the Lord Himself. He will require your blood at my hand. I would argue that this illustrates the need to be careful when we appoint men to spiritual leadership. Paul underscores this truth in 1 Timothy 3.6. He says that the overseer should not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation occurred by the devil. Now, I would argue that, Christ, that the fear of Christ insists that we submit, but it also places great restriction on those who are leading. You see, shepherds are not free to abuse the sheep, but are to be held to account. And if a man refuses that accountability, if he refuses to be held accountable, then he is not fit to be a leader of God's people. Let me say that again. If a man refuses accountability, then he is not fit to be a leader of God's people. Beloved, our ultimate authority, whether you are the one submitting or the one in authority, is Christ. Christ is our ultimate authority. And we are all submitting to Christ. Charles Spurgeon says, A man is not far from the gates of heaven when he is fully submissive to the Lord's will. End quote. Church, we cannot model mutual submission to one another if we are not submitting ourselves to the will of the Father. We cannot rightly submit to one another, and we will, mark this, we will abuse our spiritual authority if we are not ourselves fully submitted to Christ. In the words of Jerry Bridges, above all, above all else, we must learn how to bring our wills into submission and obedience to the will of God on a practical, daily, hour-by-hour basis. And that includes all of God's people. It includes all of, our God, all of God's people, whether you're in a position of authority or whether you're not. Spiritual authority cannot be abused when it is submitted to the will of God. It's that simple. Paul demonstrates this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He speaks of the leadership of the missionaries. I think it was Paul and Savannah and Timothy. Uh, and, the, and their authority at Thessalonica. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2, 7. But we prove to be gentle among you. As a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Church, that is the heart of a shepherd. That is the heart of a loving, loving leader who has submitted himself to the will of the Lord. And this should be the heart of Christ-like leadership. Christ does not lead us with an iron fist, does He not? But with a loving hand. He lovingly cares for us. And our authority must then be soft and gentle and tender and caring. Ours must be the authority of, the, of one who 
provides. It must be the authority of one who protects, who cares, who who meets needs, who by strength and wisdom insulates, preserves, and secures. Above all, it must be the authority, an authority that serves. Spiritual authority that serves. Just before Jesus went to the cross, he spent time with his men. In John 13, we find that Jesus girded himself and began to wash the disciples' feet. In John 13, 12, after he had finished, he said the following to, to, to them. He says, do you, not, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. I love these words. See, he's not apologetic. He's not apologetic that he's been given authority. He's been given Ultimately, the authority in heaven, all the authority, all authority on, in heaven and on earth. But as such, he gives every leader, every person called, every man called to spiritual authority. He's given them this charge. He's given us this pattern that we must follow in serving our people. In 13, 14, he says, If I, then the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, For I gave you an example that you should also do as I did to you. What an incredible charge to God's leaders that we are to set the example of service, serving one another. We're not to lord over others. Brethren, it is the fear of Christ, going back to Ephesians 5, 21. It is the fear of Christ which provides the correct stimulus for this type of authority and submission. Brethren, if you are struggling in your relationships, be it in your family or in the church, could it be that you're not being filled with spirit? You may be struggling to submit to authority. Or you may be the one in authority, but you're abusing those who are in subjection to you. In either case, if that be true of you, whether you are hard-headed and won't submit to spiritual authority, or whether you're the one in authority and you're abusive, in either case, you are not being filled by the Spirit. It's, It's impossible. It's impossible. In the words of John MacArthur, there's only one way to cultivate a right relationship with anybody, and that's to be filled with the Spirit of God. Filled with praise and gratitude to God so that your heart is overflowing with joy. And that's what makes a person someone that you can live with, someone who is a blessing to you, end quote. Abusive leadership cannot be filled with Spirit. Those who choose not to Submit to authority are those who are not filled with the Spirit. Beloved, our attitude should be of complete submission and complete trust for Christ, and that is the key to working out your salvation in fear and trembling. It is the mark of a true Christian. If you're here today and have not placed your trust in Christ, I shudder to think how chaotic your life is. Because you're not submitting to the authority of Christ in your life. You're living independently and selfishly. I implore you, 
If you're in that position today, as an unbeliever in Christ, I implore you to consider Christ. Consider Him who died for your sin. He shed His blood to redeem for Himself a people for His own possession. He endured the suffering of the cross, the wrath of the Father, so that you would not have to endure His wrath forever. I beg you today, place your trust in Him and His work, His life, His suffering, His death, His resurrection. Today, He sits at the right hand of the Father in the heavenlies. Come to Him. Come to Him. I bid you to come. If you're here today and you already know Him, and you haven't submitted to the authority in in your life, I beg you, trust Him. Trust Him. If you're here today and and you are in authority, whether you're a father or a a leader in the church or someone who leads people at work, and you're abusive, consider these things. Consider that you will answer to Christ. You will stand before Him, and you will give account for how you are conducting yourselves. And if you are in a position of authority, please understand, please understand that He will hold you to a greater account. Let us pray. Our gracious Lord, I pray that you would help us get this right. Biblical submission is such a topic that's wrought with so much divisiveness and controversy. We rightly at times point to abuses. They occur in a sinful world. They're sinful people. As such, we can so easily be deceived, so easily be led astray. Yeah, Lord, you have given us this pattern of submission. It's not apologetic. It's not... We don't qualify any more than what you've qualified it to be. I love that you call your leaders to to lead in the fear of Christ, knowing, Lord, that your leaders, that they will stand before you and they will be held to account. May we fear you, reverentially fear you, knowing that one day we'll we'll be held accountable for how we've led our families, how we've led our people. Father, I know that many here would potentially struggle at some level with being submissive to authority. They see the difficulties. They see the pitfalls. Yet, Lord, I pray that you would help them trust in you. That they would work through these things and understand your heart for authority and submission in the church and in our families. In Christ's name, amen.